on water, right? And uh, so go ye kids, uh, you can go ye. And uh, we have a little program for the young children in the back during the, the preaching time. If you would like an outline, I do not know if they got passed out or not. Uh, if they did, uh, if you did not get one, wave your hand there. We're uh, working through a series on, on the Bible and uh, its origin, history, translation, and preservation. And uh, we have moved up here, our eighth... It is um, uh, trying to keep this from just being a relation of, of, of many facts, but the uh, point that we're trying to make is that we have a trustworthy Word of God. Uh, when I was in Bible college, we had some professors that would tell us different things like, the Bible contains the Word of God. Now, is that true? Well, the words are true, but the message is not, because this does not contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. There's a difference there. And uh, we, we went through this thing. Where, where do you finally stop? What is the final arbiter of truth? And uh, we're going to accept this book as the final arbiter of truth. We're, we're not going to add to it. We're not going to change it. I'm not a judge of the book. It's absolutely amazing to me. I met a preacher fellow preacher used to be here in the city years ago, and, and I began to notice something, and I asked him a little bit, and, you know, and, and he led me to believe that he believed what I believed. And uh, later on, we were in a meeting together where my pastor, Roy Thompson, preached, and uh, actually his wife came up to my wife at the end and said, if you believe what that preacher talking about Brother Thompson preach, you must think we're heretics. And I, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, But we're not going to make a big deal about it because your church is your business, our church is our business. That's the, the beauty of the autonomy of the local church, is we have enough to take care of right here at home. Amen? And this idea of a translation um I have thought about it, but I'm not going to do it. I'll just maybe talk you through it here. But uh, let's first look at the Bible here. Let's go to the book of Second Samuel. And if you really want a definition, if you really want to understand something, let let the Bible define the words. Uh, dictionaries are are good. Uh, I know many people love Noah Webster's 1828 Dictionary of American English. The only problem is, this ain't American English. This is English English. And so, there there are some differences there. And we need to be very, very careful what we do. But let the Bible itself, in its text, tell you. Look at verse 10 with me, if you would. And actually, verse 9, we have Abner uh, speaking to Isposheth, the son of Saul. And he says in verse 9, So do God to Abner, and more also, except as the Lord has sworn to David, even so 
I do to him to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan even unto Beersheba. Now, that's the first time the word translate is used in our Bible. And it simply means to change. Saul was the first king of Israel. Saul was dead. David was king in Judah now. Uh, Ishbosheth, Saul's younger son, was now the king in the northern uh, parts of Israel. And Abner said, I'm going to translate the kingdom. Now, that just simply means the kingdom was going to stay intact. He wasn't going to divide the kingdom as would later happen uh, with uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam and all those names that we get confused and mixed up. He said, I'm going to take the kingdom and I'm going to translate it. It's no longer going to be yours. It's going to belong to David, the whole thing. Well, that's a pretty good definition of the word translate, isn't it? Move from one authority to another. Move from one language to another. The, the thing that is translated, if it's translated properly, is going to stay intact. The kingdom was not going to change. The area of control of the kingdom wasn't changing. Just the man who was in charge of it. It was no more going to be a divided leadership, no more civil war. Uh, Let's go on to Colossians chapter 1. And we'll find this same theme worked out here. And uh, the reason why we're we're doing this is, is just to once again illustrate that if you really want to understand something, let the Bible teach you what it says about itself. Colossians 1, let's look at verse 13. Who delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. How many of you here have been translated according to that verse? If you're saved, you've been translated. You know what that means? I'm the same person, but I have a different destiny, don't I? Isn't that a good word? And... See, here's the difference. How many of you remember sinning before you got saved? What could you do about it? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do it. One of the things I I love to remind my kids, and they get tired of hearing it sometimes maybe, but they need... If you had done it on purpose, we'd be dealing with a whole different situation here. Of course you didn't mean it. But listen, God has translated us. He's taken me off the road of hell and perdition and put me on the road of righteousness and redemption. But it's still me. How many of you are glad to be translated? I mean, isn't that a wonderful thing? And then the last one is uh, we have in here is in the book of Hebrews and going through chapter 11, and it talks about Enoch getting translated. How many of you remember the story of Enoch? I mean, Enoch, you have all these different people there, and, and they lived 
500 years before they did this, and 800 years, and 900 years, and old Enoch, he, he walked with God for 300 years, and he was not. We get to the book of Hebrews, and it says he was translated. God said, I'm tired of you being down there on earth. I want you to come to heaven and be with me. Boom. Enoch disappeared. Somebody said, that's a picture of the rapture. I'd agree with that 100%, wouldn't you? I'm looking for that translation. And I'm looking to get out of this realm of life and into the realm of eternal life. How many? Don't raise your hands. Wake up sore in the morning. You found out a new place that you didn't know could get sore before, but all of a sudden it's there. Uh, that's part of the aging process. If you haven't experienced that, you've not done one or two things. Help work at Union, or you haven't gotten old enough yet. It, I mean, just uh, if you would take care of that, uh, we'll put you to work over at Union, and you could endure the pain and enjoy all those wonderful things. But um, the simple truth of the matter is, that's what the idea of translation is. There's an issue with translation that most people don't like. It's called integrity. Didn't we have a president that said character doesn't matter? Uh, does anybody remember that? Uh, well, let me tell you something. Character does matter. Integrity does matter. And it has always mattered. And one of the reasons we have so much problem with translations of our Bible is people do not pay attention to what the Word means. There's no intent. You cannot have translate something. If you will read the introduction to the New International Version, they will tell you it's a translation. I want to challenge you that you cannot translate a paraphrase. And they go on to explain the process of, we are not using a literal word-for-word translation, but a thought-for-thought translation. Well, who gets to determine the thoughts? Well, the translators, well, then who becomes the final arbiter of truth? Well, the translators, and I've had people argue, but you, you just believe in those 55 guys that translated your King James Bible. You believe in King James. I said, good night. What kind of nutcase are you? We had people translating, comparing words. The authority was no longer li- is in the translator. The authority is in what's translated. And that is the integrity issue as we allow the words, as we allow the evidence to bring this. And here is the one, another way to look at this is the issue of translation has to be based upon something objective, not something subjective. How many of you have ever liked something that you knew was bad for you? Like Haagen-Dazs and, I mean, some of those other things that are out there. Cannolis, if you haven't found cannolis yet, uh, once you do, you'll, you'll never forget New York City. Uh, and your diabetes will love you forever, right? Because you're not going to live very long. Uh, 
the simple truth of the, uh, when we get here and we talk about subjective versus objective. If something is objective, I can check it out, can I? You know what? I can read the words. If I want to check out the translation of my King James Bible, I can get the Greek words. In fact, Andrew, would you do this for me? Could you go in my office and grab my Red Strong's Concordance and and just one of the volumes of the Oxford English Dictionary there? Because I want to use that as an illustration here. But I can read this, and then I can get out different helps that are out there and check the Greek or Hebrew word from which it came. That's objective. Subjective. Well, you know, John 14, 6 is pretty dogmatic. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That had to be a scribal insertion put in in the medieval times by, thank you, by different people trying to uh, uh, assert things that Jesus never really said. Now, if you were in church this morning, Jesus was fairly clear in John chapter 10 as to his identity, was he not? So much so that the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the, Jew, the, the priests picked up stones in the court of God to break uh, the Eighth Commandment, I believe it is, Thou shalt not kill. They were going to break it right there in the temple because Jesus claimed to be God. You see, that's subjective. And you can make anything you want. One time I ran into a guy and he was telling me about the Koran. He said, the Koran's only one translation. Uh, I Uh, Not like your Bible. You have all these translations and people argue about all these things. And the Quran only has one copy in Mecca that's true. And I just looked at him and I said, Then why are the Shiites and the Sunnis killing each other over what they think the Quran says? He said, But you, you can't change the Quran. I said, You give me one, buddy, and I'll show you how to change it. I know what they do with my Bible. I can do what they do with my Bible to your Quran any old day. He never showed up again for some strange reason. You see, when something's translated objectively and with integrity, it's taken what is in this language and put in this language. And so I've titled tonight's message, The Art and Artifice. Of translations. Now, how many of you know what art is? Now, there's a guy over in Greenpoint, and uh, he does uh, modern, I guess it would be called modern art. Have you ever seen him? He's the one with the toe fungus and everything, and sits, Brother Mike's uh, just an outrageous individual, and he'll have these little pieces of paper and canvas and everything all over the place. Uh, it just looks, they call it art. That's not art. If you want to know why it looks like a mess, is because he's reflecting what's on the inside. That's what art does. If you want something that makes sense, you have to get somebody who has sense on the inside to make sense out of what they see, right? And that's simply 
what we're doing here, there is an art. If I were to draw you a picture of a rose and use all of my great artistic ability, you'd probably think my son Jason did it. Because I can't draw anything. I have no artistic ability whatsoever. I I can do straight lines as long as I have a ruler. uh, And I can trace things kind of okay. But it it just never has been a skill. And uh, yet Leonardo da Vinci painted this picture of some woman. How many years ago was that? Uh, over 500 years ago, and, and it's like one of the most valuable, recognized pieces of art in the world. What's the difference? The skill. <laughs> right? So, would you think if someone who was uneducated and unskilled did a translation, it would be equal with someone who was educated and skilled? You see, that's not subjective, that's objective now, isn't it? It it does take a little bit of work. And, And by the art, what we're talking about here is some people have better abilities to do certain things than others. And I get back to this preacher that I met several years ago when I asked him, well, what, what translation do you use? And he looked at me and says, I, I like to use my own. And in my heart, I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. You are the smartest guy that's ever lived. Because your translation is so superior to anything that we have, all the books in the world. Give me a break. I'll guarantee you're smarter than I am, but that doesn't take much. You see, when we get into this idea of translation, there's a terrible amount of artifice involved. That's deception. That's fake art. And... Boy, I'll tell you what, you can make that fake art look really good if you want to. And, and I have a little thing in here. You, you will have good translations from bad manuscripts. Guess what? That's a bad translation. Uh, if you have a bad translation from good manuscripts, you've still got a bad translation. Uh, you need a good translation from good manuscripts. Now... Is that amazing to anybody in this room? Did I just shock anybody, uh, come up with some brand new thing that you weren't? No. Anybody that knows how to do 2 plus 2 equals 4 has to agree with that statement. Unless you're a Bible scholar. Because then you change the definition of bad manuscripts to exactly the opposite of what has been historically acceptable since the days manuscripts were in the originals. And we'll get to that in a minute. But what I'd like to spend the last few minutes on here is untranslatable speech. Some of the the objects of artifice that people use. I've met some... I met one guy, one time preacher over the years, and he told me, he said, listen... He said, 
you little-minded guys who love your King James Bible, he says, you're not even smart enough to figure out the questions that I can answer. He said, you're not even smart enough to ask the right questions. I said, oh, well, uh, you know, I've been insulted worse by better, and uh, we'll just keep moving on. I said, I'm not going to worry about that, but if I could in my simple little way, here's Strong's Concordance. Now, this is my Strong's Concordance from 1981. It's, it's been used until I got a computer here. And uh, every word of the Bible is listed here. And uh, this part of Strong's Concordance is a listing of every unique word used in your King James Bible, both in Hebrew and in Greek, and a definition applied to it. Do you see how thick that is? Now, these are a list of every Greek and Hebrew word that's used in your King James Bible. Now, it's pretty small print. You can come up. I'll leave it up here. You can look at it. But there's a lot of entries in here. Now, Andrew brought me volume 11 of the... Yes, that is 11, not 9 of the Oxford English Dictionary. There are 20 volumes in this set. And the print is much smaller than that of Strong's Concordance. And I would suggest that if you find something in your Hebrew or Greek Bible that you can't translate into English, that you can't find in 20 volumes this big, that the problem is with you and not with the language. Could we say amen to that? I, I was going to bring all 20 volumes out here and stack them on the, uh, uh, on the platform just to illustrate the point. This much in Strong's Concordance compared to 20 of these. And you can't find a way to translate that into English? I'm sorry, sir, but the only intelligence I'm questioning is yours, not mine. And so when someone starts talking about it's untranslatable, say, well, how about you get a good dictionary? Uh, And you, I'm sure you can find something in there somewhere that, that would help you. The next one is idiomatic speech. And we might make a little play on the first syllable of that word, idio, uh, 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 because that's who normally gets caught up with those things. If I said, kill the lights, Brother Dave, would you know what to do? Yeah, there we go. He's killing the lights. Now, if English was not your first language and I said, kill the lights... How many people here would be getting a shotgun or some type of uh, uh, armament out to uh, shoot the lights out or, or, or commit murder or something? No, you, you understand that's idiomatic speech. Your Bible's full of it. I'm not trying to be mean tonight, but... Would I be out of line by saying if you got a problem translating idiomatic speech, you just might be caught up in the first syllable of the word idio, idiot, something like that. 
because almost every member of our church speaks another language, except pastor. Uh, but I do speak a good hillbilly, I promise you that. But I, I try not to use it too much. Uh, the, the simple point is, we don't have problems getting words. And we don't have problems unless we want to make them. You see, we have a thing called education. How many of you are tired of hearing the phrase, the smartest man in the room when it comes to politics? Because the biggest mess this nation has ever been in is because the smartest man in the room made it. Uh, I like what somebody said. Why don't we give health care to Walmart or Home Depot? Wow, that would be... uh, They do... How many of you have ever gotten frustrated at the post office? And you want those people running health care. I got a letter from our thing, and most of you know Philip was in the hospital for a couple days. Praise God, he didn't have to have surgery. It wasn't appendicitis, and and we thank the Lord for all of that. But I got a letter already from the uh, from the insurance company saying, well, the room and board when he was in the hospital is not going to be covered because uh, it wasn't a medical necessity. And, And so they put a phone number on there, and I called the lady up and. Finally, after about 30 seconds, I said, can I have your supervisor, please? Uh, and supervisor got on and said, can I explain this? to?" I said, sure, I'd like, I'd like you to do that. She says, well, this letter tells you that we're, uh, we're not uh, uh, sure that we're going to cover this, but you'll be able to file a grievance and, and uh, I'll help you file the grievance so that you can complain to the insurance company and get them to pay for something that we're not sure whether they're not going to pay for or not. And, and so... You have to forgive me, but I, I, I said, okay. I said, let me see if I can make sense of this. So you, uh, the insurance company has not yet decided whether they're going to cover this or not because they haven't processed the claim because they don't know what they're doing. And, and uh, once you figure out what you're going to do, you're going to send me a piece of paper so that I can figure out what you're doing so that I can file a grievance because you don't know what you're doing yet. But you sent me the letter just to suppose that this might happen so that I can be prepared no matter what happens to deal with the situation. I said, does that make any sense to you? And she said, well, I'm sorry, sir. Uh, that's the way we do things. And I said, I'm sorry, ma'am. I said, it's not your fault. It's your boss's. I said, and so we'll both have a good day and uh, wait for somebody who doesn't know what they're doing yet to figure out what might have happened that didn't really even happen. Yet, maybe, kind of. Are you confused yet? Uh, but I've read commentaries that make more, that make less sense of a passage of this book that God gave us than I just made of insurance policy. And you know something. That is a terrifying thought. That the scholars, quote unquote, 
who would set themselves up to teach us what the Bible says don't have enough sense to use a good dictionary. Would throw up their hands and say, oh, you can't translate that. That's idiomatic speech. There's no way to get the message across. As I told one person one time, I said, now, either you're so blatantly ignorant that you cannot even understand the conversation, the point of the conversation we're talking about here, or you're being dishonest. And he got mad at me. He said, there you are. He said, you people were all the same. You're either calling me, uh, uh, you're calling me ignorant or a liar. And I said, I am not. I said, I want to give you a choice. Now, which one are you? I need to know so that we can proceed here. Why can't we take what God gave us and ask the question, how am I supposed to live? Instead of, Wasting all of our time and effort trying to do something that's already been done in a far better way than you'll ever do. Amen? That's the issue with translations. You see, let's let's just look at a little history here. The oldest translation, uh, oldest translations we know, the, there, there are at least three of them. The... Uh, the Syrian, or it's also called the Old Peshetta in reference, in, in version to the New Peshetta, which came about 500. The Old Latin, that is, versus the New Latin, which was the Latin Vulgate Bible uh, that, that came before. And then the Egyptian, or the Coptic translation. And you'll notice there that the Syrian and the Old Latin favor the traditional or the received text that our King James Bible comes from in an uh, overwhelming majority, two to one, three to one. It, it's only the Egyptian translation that favors the minority manuscripts, and that's because they had their origin in Egypt. And so... Our, our newer translations from 500 until the invention of the printing press were almost exclusively major, uh, uh, received text Bibles. The minority text was basically dropped out of history just before 500 A.D. and was not revived again fully until the translation of the English Revised Version in 1881. Oh, yeah, there were bits and pieces in different places, and Tischendorf made tens of thousands of corrections to his 23 or 24 different updates of his New Testament text that he found in the garbage can. But nobody was using these except scholars. It's amazing the church... All except for the Roman church. I mean, the Protestants, they're wrong about a lot of things, but they're not wrong about everything. At least they were using the right kind of Bible. Amen? 
and all of the quote-unquote splinter groups they call cults and heretics, most of them are forefathers. Uh, it's amazing that the Waldensians were using the right Bible. And they traced their history back to about 150 A.D. The old Gaelic Bible. That's the Irish Bible. It's not one of those. It's one of these. The Bible of the Gauls. Does anybody know where the Gauls lived? G-A-U-L-S. They were the people who made up uh, what would become modern-day France. They had an old translation. went back about 500, 450 somewhere. It was one of these. It wasn't one of those. You see, we had some people that just simply and as honestly as they could translated from the Greek into the Latin, into the Gaelic, into the Gallic, into the Frank language, language of the Franks, another group that mixed with the Gauls and made France. And many of these ancient translations... I had someone tell me, well, the only Bible used in all of history from 450 A.D. to modern times was the Latin Vulgate of Jerome, which was a Catholic Bible. It was one of those. I said, that's an interesting statement. So where did the Waldensian Bible come from? Where did the Syrian Bibles come from? Where did all these other translations, where did, where did they all come from? Oh, they weren't in use. I mean, okay, if you want to ignore facts, there's no more conversation. We can't have anything here. What, what we need to do is understand that if you speak English, this is the Bible you want. It's been translated. Biblically. The whole thing. It was done with honesty and integrity. And by the way, we had lawyers in 1611, but they had not yet had a chance to do to the English language what has been done to our language. Words actually meant things back then. Uh, Today, how many words do you need to convey a thought? Well, it normally doesn't do any good because the person you're talking to is plugged into their iPod or their headset or somebody on the Internet, and they're not listening to you anyway. Now, are they? You have to stop and you have to think. And that requires some work. But it's okay because it's the Word of God. And I don't know how many people over the years have said, Pastor, English isn't my first language. Do you have a simpler translation? And the answer is, no, we don't. This is the simplest translation in the English language. That's verifiable. That's not a subjective truth. That's an objective truth. And uh, we have some little... I think, do we still have those David Cloud dictionaries? Uh, He put together a, a $5 dictionary. It's got every hard word... In your King James Bible. And you can put it in your Bible case with you. If you don't have one, see, see Andrew and he'll, he'll sell you one. 
and if you don't have five bucks, we'll give you one because we want you to understand what's in the book. Amen? You see, that's the art of translation. And I would challenge you to read. Even McNeil Lair, I, I never will forget, but as long as God gives me semblance of memory, reading in a history book, I was looking up references on the King James Bible, and I saw McNeil Lair News Hour, King James Bible. And I said, wow, these are really God-hating liberals. Uh, the, they're, they're way out there on most of their stuff. Here was the basis of the, the quote that I read. The crowning achievement of the English language without dispute is the translation of the 1611 King James Bible. While Shakespeare literally sacked the libraries of the world for English words to put in his plays, the translators took 8,000 simple words and made the most beautiful book that has ever been put into English. He said, wow, that's pretty strong testimony for someone who doesn't believe a word what this book says, at least by what they've put in their news reports that I've heard. You see, translating is not a sin. It's a necessity. And don't listen to the people who say it can't be translated because Jesus translated things. He translated you when you got saved. Amen? God translated Enoch. Abner translated the kingdom. God can translate his words. And he can use people who are honest and educated to translate it. And that's what you're holding right here. It's it's just that simple. And if you have a problem, you just need to lay down all the hyperbole and understand 8,000 unique words in English make up our King James Bible. They say the average person living in America has between uh, a, a nine to 15,000 word vocabulary just to function an educated person is in the 20 to 25,000 range and if you got any more than that you've just been reading the dictionary too much amen and uh, the thing is we can trust and we can follow God's word just as he translated you when he saved you if you have an honest complete translation You can trust it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word.